Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 3, Command or Lack of Command, arrives. Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of Penny University's new series, Our Investigation, Our Truth. My name is Deborah Fingston and my son Andrew Ashcraft was on the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. My name is Doug Harwood and I worked on Granite Mountain for a few years and I had some good friends on that crew. And then we of course have our sound girl Shelby and um, she's here helping us stay on task. First, I want to express really quickly a thank you to everybody who has written us. Your suggestions are wonderful. Your encouragement is truly priceless. We thank you for that. But we also want to say, if you have any specific questions or if you want more information cleared up, anything like that, please email us at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. We'll get back to you with um, answers. And again, we just love to hear from you. If you have any questions about June 28th and June 29th of 2013, um, please listen to episodes one and two. We are on episode three and we're gonna be covering June 30th and it is a big deal and we wanna devote all of our time to that date. Um, We're gonna try our best to follow the serious accident investigation report, but know that it was so bad and so full of holes that we have to introduce other information as well but we want to express the misinformation of the Serious Accident Investigation Report. This report was only 58 pages long, and they interviewed 38 people. So that's pretty appalling. And that's the interview notes. Yes, that's the interview notes. Yes. Um, No, this is very emotional and important information. What we discovered made our blood boil. Um, Sometimes... It's going to be emotional. June 30th is a pretty emotional day. There will be tears. There will probably be raw language. So please be aware. Um, It might get a little hot. Also, this episode was supposed to be us having a conversation with some Granite Mountain Hotshot alumni. But I will tell you it's extremely emotional. And so um, people were struggling Uh, emotionally but also schedules and so we didn't want to hinder and put things off so we're going to dive right into June 30th and down the road we will have that interview with the alumni and we're going to talk about the crew and we're going to continue using the ADOS report Arizona Department of Occupational Health Health Safety and Health um, recorded interviews from both these agencies and uh, dispatch records all this information along with personal interviews and information that we have discovered or things we've learned from other people. Sunday, June 30th is a chaotic day with lots of things happening. We, it's going to take more than one episode to cover what needs to be known, so we're just going to get as far as we can today. We, uh, we don't want to go too quickly. Um, it's important information. It's cost 19 people their lives. It's important to learn from the mistakes and try and solve these problems and, and just learn from them. Um, So again, if you need to know what happened prior to June 30th, listen to the other episodes, please. On the morning of June 30th, um, new leadership was arriving, but it was arriving in bits and pieces to this fire. 
Don't get the impression that everybody showed up at one time. That's not true. There was some transition. I don't believe it was good. Um, not a very good transition of information between the Incident Command Team 3 and Incident Command Team 2. And remember, it goes up a number. 3 is not as um, big as 2. Right, right. So it's going up. And there was a, the transition was mostly that the IC3 was just staying with the IC2 and trying to pass on information. Right. But it seems that a lot of information somehow wasn't making it out to the people on, in the field. Right. It's, it was very chaotic. There wasn't a lot of time either. Right. So they didn't spend a lot of time with each other, which... Um, well, I think he stayed until noon or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I, th I think, yeah, about three hours. Um, 7 a.m., a briefing did happen for those that were there. Not again, not everybody was there. Granite Mountain was there at this meeting, but then there was some changes to leadership. Um, we will use the crew's names. So Eric Marsh, be, who was, um, what was his position exactly on Granite Mountain? He was the hotshot superintendent. Okay, so here, um, Eric Marsh was the Granite Mountain hotshot superintendent. He was changed. He became the division superintendent, um, I'm sorry, division supervisor A. And what is a division supervisor? So division would be, a, it's a geographic location. So division A supervisor is going to be in charge of a certain area along the fire edge. Okay. Or their planned fire edge, where they plan it to be. So there's divisions and groups. Later we'll talk about structured groups. That's a, they don't have a specific area. They have a task. Okay. But it's the same level of um, command So they kind of, it's like a, the fire is a pie and they're dividing this pie up. The divisions would be yeah, dividing the pie up. Okay, okay. So Eric Marsh became the division supervisor of A. Then Jesse Steed, who was the Grand Mountain captain, he took over the crew leadership. Um, That's correct. So he would take step into uh, Eric's spot, and and everybody would kind of bump up in that in the crew. Okay, okay. And is that common to pull people like that? Yes, quite common, especially in these. Uh, this isn't supposed to be an initial attack fire, but they're treating it like an initial attack fire still. So they don't have enough people there to make to have divisions. It's early in the day. They need a division. He's there. He can do it. They put him in the spot. Well, and. You know, you and I, Doug, we both know this. Some people, and I agree with it, too many hats on too many people. I mean, that took a person away from Granite Mountain. Um, I, I believe that there's some people that say at Storm King, that was part of the issue too, is that they were pulling people off crews and making them, you know, different. So, Yeah, and it's a thing to think about too. Like, should he be supervising his own crew? Or should they make him a supervisor somewhere else where he's not the supervisor of his own crew? What kind of dynamic that causes as far as communications? Right. We'll see this later. Someone thinks they're talking to Eric because he's the superintendent of Granite Mountain, but he's also the division. They don't know who he's talking to. It's just, it, it, it yeah. can be confusing, so it's something that needs to be looked at. So right from the get-go, the stay is confusing. So be prepared for that, and we're going to try our best to walk you through it. So, and they had, so they had this briefing in the morning. Um, with the uh, operations, and they're going to be talking about safety zones, where they think they could be, what their tasks are going to be for the day, escape routes. Hopefully they have some kind of weather. Um, that's what you would expect in a briefing of this sort. And I know when I worked on Granite Mountain, it was always Eric, and, or it would be the, the superintendent, the captain, and anybody of the, uh, and the squad bosses or anybody else, or some of the trainees might come to those briefings too. 
just to hear what a briefing was like. They were good about kind of passing that information on to everybody within the crew. Okay. So Marsh was Division A, and then he met with a field, what we call OSC. What is an OSC? That's Operations Section Chief. Um, so it's basically the person who's in charge of figuring out what the, how they're going to attack the fire, basically. Yeah. Okay, so the IC is set with the commander, then the field OSC, and then we also have a planning OSC. Yeah, and there doesn't necessarily have to be a division there. They okay. just fire, they had a planning and a, a field. Okay. And I'm uh, not sure what the need was, other than they needed more command staff in general, just because the fire ends up getting so big and splitting off and all sorts of other problems. But right. uh, they do have two command Okay. Two uh, operations staff at this time. Okay, so Eric meets with the field OSC and the um, what's called structured yeah structured group supervisor for that area. There were other structured group supervisors for a, another neighborhood that we might talk about a little, but this is the one that's right where Granite Mountain's working. Um, basically, Yarnell they call, call it Glen Isla, Isla, which is like just a I guess a neighborhood of Yarnell. Yarnell. Right, and there's a really important street, and oddly, it's called Sesame Street in Glenna Isla, and the one structure protection number one is given control over Glen Isla and Sesame Street, and this is a key location. Um, why is Sesame Street, why do we think that that is a key location? Well, aside from what Granite Mountain is doing, it's really the only other work in their area that seems like anybody is working on and they're, what they're doing is prepping a road that seems like maybe a last-ditch effort before the houses uh, there's an old two-track road that they want to dozer out and make it a possibility to burn off of sometime later and when you're talking about burn off of what does that mean that means they're gonna set fire their plan is if they can get it done in time they're gonna uh, bulldoze make the road wider they're gonna do some saw work take some of the brush out and then light their own fire along that road on the opposite side of where the houses are. It's just so it'll burn more of the fuel in between the fire and the homes. So that's what they refer to as a back burn, right? Yeah. Okay, so they're putting fire on the ground, and that fire is moving towards the main fire. Right, that's the plan. Okay, so the plan is, at this point, to pre prep Sesame Street that just in case they can do a back burn. And so Eric Marsh meets with um, the field OSC and the structure protection group one. And that's the plan that the structure protection group has come up with. So that's what they're going to be working on. Okay. They've said that uh, Yarnell in our in the last was uh, unsavable. Really, the houses weren't going to be able to save. I remember that. Yeah. So this is their plan. Instead of trying to save individual homes or do work in there, they're going to try and make a line to keep the fire out of the. So it won't blow, burn into. Right, right. Okay, and and that's is that that's pretty common, isn't that? I mean, yeah. that's a, a usually a good way. Yeah, and it seems like a good plan. The problem with it right now is they don't have it anchored into anything, but that's where they've sent sent Granite Mountain to find anchor to start the anchor to get it down to where they can anchor it into something. Okay. Um, An anchor would be anything that the fire can't get around to outflank them in some way. Okay. So it could be a giant, you know, huge boulder field. We use all sorts of things. But what they're going to use is the black, cold black from the fire burning days ago and then tie it and then 
dig line along the black edge or burn along the black edge to get down to where they can tie in with Sesame Street. Okay. Granite Mountain is. Granite Mountain, right. Um, and now we're at 8 a.m. And Blue Ridge, another Type 1 hotshot crew, arrives on the fire. And we're told um, by Blue Ridge interviews and also by a personal interview we had um, with a Blue Ridge crew member that they arrived on this fire and they just hung out in the parking lot waiting for instructions for 30 to 45 minutes and they were just doing nothing. Um, the crew member that we talked to in our living room said we were twiddling our thumbs and in Blue Ridge's interview um, they say that they were just begging for information. Um, is that normal for a crew to show up and just hang out hoping that they get something? Well, when you could show up to a working fire like that as a hotshot crew, you definitely want to be put to work right away. Right. And if you're not, then yeah, you kind of go stir crazy. And I think that's what these guys are doing. And eventually they tied in with the only other person in that area that seemed to be doing the work was that uh, structure group and started kind of helping them out, prepping that road. Yeah. But, but yeah, for the first part, they just, uh, there wasn't anybody to give them any updates or get them going. And another thing that the Blue Ridge crew member said to us is that um, their soup and their captain were saying, you know, we got to get on this fire. We got to get some stuff done or Granite Mountain's going to rub it in <laughs> that we were just standing around while they were doing all the work. And I thought that was kind of cute. But he, you know, and that happens, you know, if you happen you, to be the crew. And yeah, yeah. Or if you're the crew that did all the prep work and then the other crew comes and does your burn, that's, you know, oh. it's the way it goes, but. <laughs> you rub it in yeah, a little you gotta, bit. Yeah, you got to rub it in. <laughs> Well, and here's, again, another confusing point. On the Blue Ridge interviews, they say they were on that fire. They showed up at 8 o'clock. According to uh, um, the uh, leadership interviews, they say that they didn't even get there, um, that Blue Ridge didn't get there till 9 o'clock. So we've got an hour, again, confusion between interviews. Um, times are never correct. We're going to try our best to get the times correct, but every interview says people were there at different times. And so, again, that's leading and uh, just another example of chaos. Even, even interview notes between the SAIR from one person and then interview no, interviews from that actual person from the ADOSH times don't match up. So Right. Well, and another thing that the SAIR did is they interviewed people together. Yeah. You know, they did the planning um, OSC and the field OSC together. They interviewed those two guys in the same room together. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they would... I don't know. If you're interviewing somebody for a, for a purpose, you'd want to find out what they knew about the fire, each person individually. Right. Yeah. I, and ADOSH did not do that. Um, they interviewed people singularly, and I thought that was appropriate. Um, we do know this, that Blue Ridge tries to um, get a handle on what's happening, they are trying to contact people. They're trying to talk with people. They ultimately call um, Eric Marsh to find out because they can't get anything from Incident Command. So they call Eric and say, what's going on? Yeah. And it's also an interesting uh, side note, too, that uh, SAIR, when we first saw the interview notes from that, they had redacted so much stuff from, oh, from yeah. Blue Ridge's interview. You, you couldn't even tell what was going on with anything. Right. We FOIA'd their um, Blue Ridge's interview, and it was just 
black line after black line, and then it would be, have a break and say, and he said, black line, black line, but then black line, black line. But we have since gotten the unredacted interviews, and that's what we're working here with is now we know. And I will tell you what's really frustrating is we did not get the Blue Ridge interviews unredacted until years later. Um, and I was appalled by that because some of the things that were in the Blue Ridge interviews should have been in the SAIR. Yeah, and the interviewers of the SAIR knew these facts. Yes. Blue Ridge talked specifically about how confusing everything was on the fire, how bad the communications were, mm-hmm. um, how people didn't know where they were at, where they were going. It was, it's just a confusing mess, and they describe it well. And that was backed up by other interviews. The Perryville crew also said um, that they talked and that the, they just said they were so frustrated with this fire. They were frustrated with the um, OPS. Now, what's that? Ops. So that would be the operations. Okay. Yeah. The incident command. Right. So here's Perryville, another crew that's on the fire. They're frustrated. That's in their interview. Then also the Globe crew said that they were confused. They were given no real briefing. They were given no maps, but nobody was given maps on this fire. Yeah. Um, and that the communication was bad. And you're going to hear that repeatedly throughout this day. No maps, no communication, confusion, confusion, confusion. Yeah, and these briefings aren't real brief. Usually you would go to a, a fire like this that had been burning for a few days and you would have a good briefing, a well-planned mm-hmm. out briefing. You would get paperwork on it with maps and just for radio frequencies and all that. Sounds like what they were handing out was they were showing maps on iPads that people happen to have, mm-hmm. um, and they were writing things on little scraps of paper and mm-hmm. passing out stuff like that. So just not a, a well-organized plan yet. And still, as of yet, no complexity analysis. Yeah, it's crazy. Not yet. The uh, command staff set up for a, a second uh, briefing to take place at 9.30 at a middle school somewhere in Yarnell. Um, Grinder Mountain was not there. It was just uh, set up for the command staff to be there. And they had said, uh, the IC stated he, did, he didn't want anybody to go out on the fire. No field work until they had been to that briefing. Um, and, you know, Granite Mountain wasn't at this briefing. Granite Mountain's already out working. Um, and this is also where they really made it important, um, you know, to build that area on that Sesame Street Road. Yep. And they sent, uh, so Blue Ridge is there helping them uh, with that prep for that burn, but they're not actually attached to the, uh, the structure group. They just, ha- they just have nothing else to do. Nobody's given them an assignment, so they've, they're p- doing work. They found something to yeah, do. Yeah, they found other work to do. Okay. Um, at 9.30, Marsh, who's uh, Division A on the fire now, uh, was briefed by a Helitac crew member about weather and fire behavior. He says the fire is estimated about 500 acres now. Marsh is up on top of the ridge, kind of near a hella spot. And it's just kind of, you know, from they had a briefing at 8 o'clock, probably done as soon as they would have been done with that is 8.30. And they're already up on the mountain. So this is an area where the vegetation and the fuels are so packed. They haven't been reduced. Um, they hell attacked other um, crews in because they couldn't get up. And Granite Mountain gets their zip. right. right. So it shows you that a Type 1 crew and Granite Mountain knew exactly what they were doing. They were professional and they were fast. Yep. Yep. 
So at uh, 10 a.m., uh, Granite Mountain is, is spotted by a helicopter crew member. The crew says they're about 100 yards from the fire, like so from the burned edge of the fire. So they've already made it to the ridge, and they're walking along the ridges up to get to the black edge. Um, and Blue Ridge was told around that time to connect their line with Granite Mountain's line. But there's really nothing. Granite Mountain doesn't have a line down to them yet, so there's really nothing they can do. And, Grand, and Blue Ridge has nothing down there that they can anchor into. Like I said, if they don't have an anchor, if you don't fight fire with an anchor point, you really aren't doing any, any work because it could go around you at any moment if you don't have an anchor point. Okay. So what they need to do is wait for Granite Mountain to come down off the hill in order to tie in with that. But they're doing this prep work along the road so that by the time they get Granite Mountain comes down, they'll be easy. It's ready. Easy, easy connection. Okay. Um, about 10.22, the formal transfer of the Incident Command 3 to the Incident Command 2 was announced over the radios. So it went from um, the one person who had been on the fire since Friday it's now being taken over by um, leadership that's supposed to be one step higher than them, that um, ICT2. I will tell you, um, again, I want to reiterate, I, um, that the Incident Commander 3 was on the fire 28 days on the 28th, and this is two, 30 hours later, so this guy is burned out. Um, the transition was only three hours chaotic transfer between um, the commands. Um, and even in Blue Ridge's, again, um, records in their interviews, it states that they never knew this. They never heard um, it over the radios announced who was in control of this fire until after Granite Mountains. And I think those were things that the SAR interviewers never even asked people. Oh, no. This was just something Blue Ridge offered up as saying, hey, we never even knew who was in charge of the fire. You know, we had the wrong person in charge of the fire. And they never interviewed anybody asking them specifically, did you know who was in charge of the fire? It's never in there. Right. Head, when, so. when we're reading the interviews, we're like, why didn't they ask this? Right. Why didn't they go into more detail? It's, uh, and this is another one of them. Um, people on the fire did not know who was in control and who was in command. Um, here is some really super important information. 1030 Blue Ridge is working along Sesame Street with a dozer. Um, by this time, um, and other firefighters. The dozer, the, the dozer that they had didn't have a uh, dozer boss with them. So uh, Blue Ridge, most hotshot crews have dozer bosses uh, so they can take over and show the dozer where they need line and figure all that out. So Blue Ridge specifically placed one of their dozer bosses with the dozer to help them prep that line. Well, and it says in both the interviews that Blue Ridge, you know, took over. This dozer guy, um, he's just trying his best. He even stated, I didn't have any direction. I wasn't told what to do. Um, I was just trying to figure out what would be the best. And Blue Ridge said, no, we'll take, we're, we're going we're gonna to run you. We'll, we'll get this working. Um, they wanted to clear out that two-track road as best as possible, which you talked about with the burnout. They make that road wider. Um, so they're, they're taking care of it. But also, could you talk to me a minute about, Doug, you and I have been out there time and time again for somebody, Sesame Street, and you'll hear the shrine now a lot. And the shrine is really a Catholic, a Catholic shrine. There's a really beautiful little um, path to walk through. And so they make reference to the shrine. What is the topography between Sesame Street and the shrine? Um, it's... If you're taking that road that they're taking, it's, it's kind of flat. 
it comes down off of rolling hills into kind of flats, super brushy. Um, and then it, towards the end of it, though, it gets into the kind of a steep where the two track kind of disappeared and it turned into just a real rough. The dozer wasn't able to go down that that portion, that last little portion into the shrine. Right. But they could prep from where they thought Granite Mountain would be able to get down to, basically off the hillside where the dozer couldn't go up the hill anymore to right. where the dozer couldn't go any further on the other end. So it's a road, and then it's, when you and I have walked it, it's a, it's a path. Right, at the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so this is the topography that they're working on. Um, and at 1100, Eric says he can see the clouds and he would keep an eye on the weather. This was something he was talking with the planning operations chief, according to the SAR interview. But looking back at the ADOSH interviews, the planning operations said he never talked to Division A during the entire fire. Um, it's just another untrue thing as we, as we read through and discover these things. We've heard communications of him. He also did, he did a recon flight. And I've never heard of anybody, any operations doing a recon flight, not talking with the divisions on the fire um, as they're flying over. That's something that you, when you came across that, I could see you just get really a little irritated that. Yeah. You know, I, he's doing a recon flight, yet he's saying he's never talked to. Yeah. I mean, you talk to every division. I would think every time I've been on, you hear them talking to the divisions as they're flying over, um, telling them what they see from the air, giving them updates, asking for updates on the ground, back and forth. It, it, well, and what's really frustrating is here he says, um, I didn't talk to them, yet audio recordings have been found with him communicating correct. with them. So in reality, it was a lie. Yep. And the SAIR printed that. Right. Frustrated. So it's 11.30 now, and the fire behavior is becoming much more active. The personnel are, are engaging more in structure protection stuff at this time. Everybody else on the fire has kind of switched over to a structure protection mode. Um, they're all worried about um, getting into the um, neighborhood to the north and into Yarnell eventually. And isn't that something Granite Mountain get? you know, since... The tragedy people have said they're a hotshot crew they shouldn't have been doing structure protection i mean they've been that's been a label that's been slapped on them yeah i think it's yeah it's very irritating to me because they think because they were part of a municipal fire department that they weren't a type one hotshot crew or that they would take structures more important than that but it's obvious that they were really the only ones at this point actually fighting fire or doing anything, any tactics that were just, you know, anchoring in and solid firefighting, putting out the fire, that's what well, they were doing. The and other, want, everyone else is doing structure stuff. And I want people to hear what you just said. They were the only ones out on the fire fighting it. Yeah. Everybody else was doing structure protection. Yet, often those are the ones that are saying, well, no, they were trying to do structure protection. They shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, it seems at this point, that's what everybody, all the other people in the, well, the, the command staff on this fire is switched over to the structures are more important. Yeah. Let's fix the, yeah, yeah. So, not burn structures down. Structure becomes more important than human being. Well, I don't think they're saying that right now. But. Uh, well, I'm saying that and that <laughs> pisses me off. Actually, it, it just really irritates me because that's true. Granite Mountain's out there. They're all worried about the structures, which I feel bad about homes. But you know what? You've got a crew on this fire and you're more worried about protecting a house. Yeah, and as you'll see as we go through this, we'll kind of bring it up again and 
again, we can bring it up again as we, as we go, but Granite Mountain continues to be the ones anchoring and flanking the fire while everyone else is working about yeah. structures. The only ones. Right. And the command is, is, it seems like they've switched over their tactics. They're not even worried about anchoring and flanking the fire. They, they keep talking about point protection and structure protection and worried about how the fire is coming to these structures. All the air attack stuff seems to be hitting just, just areas that aren't going to connect anything to anchor in anything. They're just trying to stop the fire from getting to structures or right. burning up structures. So the tactics have changed. This seems like the point where the tactics change. Right. But they don't seem to include Granite Mountain in that tactic change. Yes, I, keep them, I agree. Yeah. And it's so irritating. So, so Grand Mountain continues what they're doing, burning out along the edge, connecting fingers of black where, where the green, you know, fire doesn't burn in a completely straight line. There's going to be fingers where they have to burn out in between two black edges to get a nice straight line as they're coming down the hill. As they're doing this, it's a great tactic. It cuts out about probably 80% of the work you have to do, but the air attack keeps coming over and dropping fire retardant on the burn that they're trying to do to connect those things. And Eric tells them repeatedly over and over, um, we want you to pre-treat the green sides. So, you know, keep the side that we want green pre-treated with retardant. We don't want you to be hitting what we're burning. But they keep saying, they keep coming in and they keep dropping retardant on his burn. Okay, so let me get this straight. Granite Mountain is starting a burnout to burn back to the fire. Right. And Air Attack is putting out their fire, not the fire that right. needs to be put out. They're putting out all of their hard work all morning. Right, and even with, it seemed like, clear direction, according to of these other interviews, they were still, they were just going to end up doing whatever they, the air attack was going to end up doing whatever they wanted to do. Right. So Eric had to, uh, or Granite Mountain had to change their tactics and just go direct on the fire, which is going to be a lot more time-consuming. They're going to have to follow each, each black edge Right. Um, up and down as they go down the hill. And it's super hot, 100, 100 to 120 degrees, um, rocky, extreme rocky terrain. Again, fuels that they were the only crew able to get in and out of, it seems. And Eric, we have audio recording. Eric Marsh is telling them, you know, we don't want you to drop here, we want you to drop there. And they're still doing it. Right. Again, more confusion. More confusion. And Grand Mountain and Division A are put in charge of anchoring this whole fire, so he has to even split his crew into two squads. One squad to go check kind of the eastern side to make sure it doesn't come around them. And then the one squad, I'm sorry, the western side. And then the one squad to stay on the east side and do that main work, saw work and stuff along the edge, along that black edge. Yeah, you know, it's just crazy. Um, well, this puts us at about 1154 and Blue Ridge is... They're ready to meet with uh, Marsh and Steed at the anchor point. Um, and it's, it sounds like they talked for about 30 minutes just on tactics and what's going on in the fire. It seems like uh, in Blue Ridge's interview, they were, they were expressing how frustrated Marsh, Marsh and Steed were with uh, the, the drops that Air, Air Attack did on them. The, they were talking about how bad the communications were as far as the radio problems. They talk about how the, they think that it was due to incorrect tone guards within the radios. And Bindex Kings can get confusing. I mean, those radios can do almost anything. So there's a lot of different options and, and things within those radios. So it has to be, you know, you have to really know those radios to, to program them. And it seems like the hotshot crews are really well-versed at that. 
you know, they punch in their own frequencies. They can figure it. They they take care of that every time. Um, so the hotshot crews are going to be w the ones probably that have the best communicating radios in the fire, but they're still saying complaining of the radio right. communications. Right. So um, Marsh, Steed, and Blue Ridge say that that's not how it is. Yet in the serious accident investigation report, none of that's talked about. Never mentioned. Never mentioned how terrible the communication is. Um, you know. They, the SAIR missed such important information. Um, everyone on the fire, every volunteer structure fire, um, Blue Ridge, the other few crews that were there, they always, they're talking about how bad the radios were. Um, why do crews put up with this? I mean, why wear this as a badge of courage? I mean, why do crews put up with such horrific radios? I, yeah, Adam, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, you, and, you, and you just kind of fall back on keeping your own crew safe, and you're going to keep good communications with the, the crews around you. Um, you just kind of fall back into that kind of scenario. It's not the best, of course, but... It, but there is great radios out there. I mean, why is it cost, do you think? Could be. Well, yeah. when your life becomes on the line, I don't know. I just, that's... Horrific to me. I don't get it. Um, and also something that happened at that meeting is Granite Mountain and Blue Ridge discuss, um, you know, discussed and decided where Granite Mountain would put a lookout. It wasn't just Granite Mountain making this you know, decision for their lookout. It was right. the only two crews doing anything on the fire. I don't want to rob from some people that are protecting the structures. Right. Right, but um, so they decide where the Granite Mountain lookout goes, and what exactly does the lookout do? So he's going to watch for the, for the fire behavior, um, give updates on weather. He's going to spin his own weather. Um, he's going to listen to the weather that's broadcasted. Uh, just keep an eye on where the crew is, um, where other crews could be too, um, and just pay attention to the radio and what's going on on the fire. Um, at the same time, they had also discussed that. Uh, they would be able to pick up the Granite Mountain. The plan was to pick up the Granite Mountain lookout later in the day also. Blue Ridge Blue was going to pick Okay. Because they had the ATV that they could get around on. Right. Um, something else that we discovered that <clears throat> happened at this time. So here's Granite Mountain meeting with Blue Ridge. They're the only ones talking about attacking the fire. Um, when we were looking through the interview notes, I was looking through dispatches interview notes and there's an interesting meeting that happens in Prescott at the fire center. And the fire center is at the Prescott airport. And the Prescott National Forest fire chief calls a meeting at the fire center with agency administrators. And he stresses with extremely strong feelings for them that this should really not be an IC, um, an IC type two, that it needs to go to an IC type one crew. Um, and so they do. Team. I see um, that um, team. Team, yeah. team, yes. So that this fire is uh, getting too big, and it needs to go up one. Yeah, too much complexity within it. Okay. Right. Because no complexity analysis yet. <laughs> but even a person that's at the fire center in Prescott sees this thing's falling apart. We need to get this going. Um, and an order was placed to change this fire over from the type 2 team to a type 1 at 2.30. 14.30, so at 2.30, correct? Or is that 1.30? Yeah. 2.30. Yeah. Um, yet the order was lost. 
there was a problem with it. Then they had to redo it at four o'clock. So here, the fire chief or the safety fire officer here at Prescott National Forest at the fire center in Prescott at noon says, we need to get this to a type one, yet nothing happens till four o'clock, three hours. I, I, it just gets me, gets me. Blue Ridge also quoted during, uh, in their interview at this time that the <clears throat> air attack had, wasn't really having, wasn't a direction. They were just kind of, like I said before, they weren't anchoring in the fire, meaning they weren't continuing their line of retardant drops along in a succinct line, keeping the fire in that area. They were kind of hitting it here and there, which would they caused, they, they, they said it split the fire into two. And uh, in, Blan in uh, Blue Ridge's interview, they said the, uh, um, seasonal guys were calling it the Swiss cheese effect and that one of the uh, squad bosses said you'd have to have cheese in order to have the Swiss cheese effect meaning it was just such a mess out there all they had was holes you know just yeah. holes in the fire everywhere which is kind of funny other than it, this is tragic yeah right the Swiss cheese effect and we have no cheese yeah oh, it's appalling there are tons of podcasts out there you have options Penny University is truly a podcast with value, and we strive to share great true stories. Some are plain fun, some might bring a tear to your eye, and maybe even make you a little angry. Listen to them all. Please listen, like, and share. Head over to our Facebook page, see who we are. And thanks for listening. You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you are finding this presentation intriguing. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at Penny University at ProtonMail.com. Thank you, and now back to the podcast. All right, this time Division Zulu arrives on the fire. And again, Division is a geographical area, and they have Zulu, we have Alpha and Zulu. Eric Marsh is Division Alpha, Division Zulu. They set that up to be so that as the fire grows, they can add all the other divisions of the alphabet within there. Um, so they always go um, Division A, then Division Z, basically? Basically, okay. to start okay. with, yeah. I get it. So the Division, division Zulu arrives, and he meets with Blue Ridge. Um, in their interview, they say he was really frustrated with the radios. He couldn't seem to communicate with anybody. He also seemed really confused on locations and where everything was. Probably from the briefing that he got earlier in the day, um, he but talks, he wasn't there to earlier. Right. Really? Well, from whatever briefing he oh, came from I see. Okay. before he okay, got there. I get it. Right. Um, he does talk with a marsh over. He has to borrow one of Blue Ridge's radios so he can communicate with so Division A. A, a division, a guy who's supposed to be in control of a division, his radio is so bad, he's got to borrow somebody else's radio to talk. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And these yeah. radios are great. <laughs> right. Okay. So he used his radio to communicate with Marsh, and it sounds like they had kind of a, they were discussing basically where the division break would be. That seemed like the, the major point of the conversation. And uh, Eric was getting frustrated with, with this other division because they couldn't come up with a, a spot to, for a division break. It sounded like he wanted to basically take over Eric's division because Eric actually had an anchor point and had a spot to end a, a right. good plan there. And so he wanted to have that division. Or something along those lines. He couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't come to agreements on where a uh, division break would be. Although later on, Eric uh, talks with operations, and in that, according to operations interview, operations was under the impression that they had discussed a uh, 
division break, basically where um, Sesame Street ties in to where Eric was going to come, the Granite Mountain was going to come down and meet okay. up with it. Well, and it wasn't at this Division Zulu, his interview that talks about how um, IC Command was extremely chaotic and that the field ops and the planning ops people, they were just checking people in and kind of talking to them individually. And then wasn't it from his interview that he said that they were writing little um, notes on little pieces of paper and giving it to yeah. him? Is that an appropriate briefing? If you're able to get all the information, I guess, but it doesn't sound like they were because oh. he came out confused, didn't have the right radio frequencies, right. no idea on where a division break. And in his interview, he never he felt like there was never a decision on where the division. Right. His break interview was pretty aggressive, I yeah. thought. Yeah. Um, you know, so basically, Division Zulu was driving around the fire. In his interview, he um, talks about how he was here and there. He did have a trainee with him. Um, he just kind of visits with people. It's really kind of bizarre. Um, he never does find that anchor point, according to his interview for the Serious Accident Investigation Report. Right. Yet they don't even pursue that, how he says, confusion, no anchor point, didn't know what he was doing, kind of driving around. Yeah. They don't even pursue it. And it seems like his first job would be to find a, a division break because he's going to be the division, and it just never happened well, for whatever reason, but it never happened that day, according yeah. to him. And this comes into confusion later because obviously operations thought that there was a division break along Sesame Street. So he, that might have been, people thought that that was a division there. Mm -hmm. And later on there's a, uh, in, within these interview notes, air attack, later on in the fire, says that he sees two firefighters burning along, burning out in Division Z. And there's not a single extra question about that in the SAR interview. They say there's a burnout on Division Z, which could be right there on Sesame Street, which could be right below where Granite Mountain ends up working, and there's not another question about it. So, it, But this is later on in the fire. Okay. But just to reiterate, there is this confusion about where this break and is. And nobody questions it. Right. Just carries on. Okay. Uh, you know, I know we became so frustrated when we were looking at the interviews and looking at the serious accident investigation report. Um, and I'm trying to stay calm while we talk, but it, it's aggravating. Um, at about 12.39, Marsh talks um, with the lookout, and he confirms that they can see each other. The lookout can see Eric. Eric can see the lookout. Um, the lookout, the Granite Mountain lookout, can see the crew. So everybody has eyes on each other, and that's what they're supposed to do, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's the point. Yeah. So, um, and so at this point... Granite Mountain is stopping for their lunch. It's, you know, a little after 12. All of their work all morning was put out by bad drops. Um, Where so they had to switch their tactics and just go direct. And yeah. so in essence, they were driven to where they're at right now by the retardant drops. Well, they, were, they, were, they never got as far as they could have had they been able to, they would have been able to cut their work in at least half okay. if they had been able to do that. So they're kind of stuck up on this ridge. And this is the spot, this, this has always irritated me in these, interview, in these uh, SAR interviews, and you see this picture all the time, it's of the lunch spot and Granite Mountain, you can see helmets and they're looking down at the fire. They're sitting on the boulders. They're sitting on the boulders, looking, looking down. Mm -hmm. You can see the fire growing off. Um, and it always, they always put that picture right where they talk about how Granite Mountain was in the black, which they are at the lunch spot, and that they, um, walk down into this bowl 
this down this down this bowl and got burned up by this but fire. But this is where they dropped in. And it just it gives you that impression that this is where they dropped in. And it's just a terrible picture and a terrible representation of what they're saying actually happened. Because, because it's not. It's not where they dropped in. That was miles away from there. and Or at least a mile, a mile. and a half mm-hmm. away from there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just... It, I always hated that picture because it gives that impression and it's not, not right. the truth. Right, and it's those iconic pictures that were in every newscast and every newspaper. You can Google them where the crew's sitting on these boulders and they're looking off and you can see the fire in the distance. Right. Um, but it's not that distant. As a firefighter, not. you see that, you'd go, why in the heck would anybody go down there? That's right. Ever. Right. But and they didn't. What, you're right. And then they didn't. They, that's not where they went down. Right. And that's where one of the most iconic pictures of Andrew is taken. Um, it's from that point that he throws the chainsaw on his shoulder and they're heading over ridges over a ridge to get to where they ultimately do drop down and um, he's carrying a chainsaw. And I don't know about you, um, as a mother, I know the certain facial expressions of my kids. I can tell when they come in if they're lying, (laughs) if they're happy, if they're excited, or if they're angry. And I will tell you, um, the very first time I saw that picture, uh, Andrew's widow and I looked at each other and she said, he's angry. And I said, he's boiling angry something, um, whether it's because they were hot and tired, everything they did all morning was being, you know, um, not handled well. Um, but I agree with you how those pictures are used and it's not right. It's, that's where they sat and had lunch. That is not where they dropped in and they're about ready to move. Yep. So at this point, uh, Marsh and Steed are basically looking out for each other. They're watching, they're, you know, talking to back and forth to each other about, um, what the f- weather's doing, and they can see each other along the ridges. Uh, cl- and, and including the lookout, too. Right. It's kind of like that triangle right. thing. Okay. Right. And there's documented also consistent communication between Granite Mountain, Blue Ridge, Structure Group, and the planning ops. This is just in the interviews. And again, there were time in, in some interviews, the uh, planning ops says he never talked to Granite Mountain. <laughs> but yet we have proof. Multiple multiple times repeatedly so it's about one o'clock 1300 now um ict2 finally completes a complexity analysis get that okay this fire is two days in two and a half days in it's one o'clock in the afternoon and oh hey by the way let's complete this complexity analysis um and based on that ict2 recommends um, to order a full type 2 um, IMT, holy mackerel, Doug, what the heck is that? So it's basically just more people, more resources in the same team that they already have. Okay, so he, it's kind of like he says, this fire is getting big, I need more, more staff. Yep. Okay, so he relays that on, he orders it, but the district forester and the state FMO who is... The fire management officer. Okay, so the money person. Right. Okay, so the state for the district forester, the state money person, changed the recommendation to a type one um, incident group, and then they placed their order. Yeah, so they saw the need that it was gonna, it's going to need to be a, a more equipped team than what they have, so we're going to upgrade okay. it. All right. So then a half hour later... The fire is heading at incident command. 
Um, at their post. At their post, yeah, their where they're all post, at, right. right? And so it says in the interviews that they were forced to move their vehicles to keep them from burning. Um, and some say that they were evacuating. Some say that they weren't. That's kind of an argument that some say they went inside. And I know when I brought it up, you said that that's probably the safest place. But I say that that adds to confusion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to move our buggies. Fire is burning us over. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And so at 14.02, so 2.02, a weather update about uh, thunderstorms came across the uh, uh, radios. Info was, was relayed to planning um, and field, op, the operations, the two operations guys, and they said they passed it on on TAC-1. And that's the only time in all these interviews they say they passed the weather on on TAC-1. There's a lot of other tactical frequencies going on in this fire that aren't getting this weather. Well, didn't we read earlier that everybody was told to go to TAC-3 on the well, radio? Well, yeah, the, I don't think we talked about that yet, but at one point, the structure group was moved to TAC-3. So they, if it was only read on TAC-1, they would never hear the weather okay. in that case. So anybody on TAC, only people on TAC-1 would be hearing the weather if that's the only weather that they read it on. Um, they, they also say that it, it was... It was super busy at that time, and they're trying to read weather. A lot of people, a lot in their interviews, say they never heard this weather. Um, and Blue, really, Blue Ridge said they never heard it. Zulu never heard it. Well, Zulu never heard it. Uh, Blue Ridge heard it, but they heard um, different, differing weather directions. Oh, that's when they right. Heard it. That's right. So they did hear it because they were one of the few that were on Tack One with Granite Mountain. So we could just say the whole thing was hectic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Zulu never heard it. Um, and there, there's, it kind of brings up an interesting th thought here. If they're going to say this, this weather that came over, they said it's going to have 50 mile per hour winds, according to what Ops is telling them. So if, at what point do we say that this weather is going to be so crazy? If, if a meteorologist is saying this weather is coming and it's going to be 50 mile an hour winds, why would anybody be out on the fire line at that point? Everybody would need to be in safety zones, it seems like. But it seems like this team, or the, the operations people, either they're not taking this weather seriously, that it's coming, that it's actually going to be 50 mile an hour winds, or they're not worried about people finding their safety zones. Right. Well, they and, are worried about structure here. Right, right. And everybody's working on the structures. But it seems, I, I just wonder if there's a point where a meteorologist says there's going to be 50 mile an hour winds, and they're going to stake their job, or not their job, but they're going to say this is what we need to do then it should almost be like a, uh, a safety thing. If you're going to say there's going to be 50-mile-an-hour winds, then nobody should be working on the fire when the 50-mile-an-hour so winds Maybe are that's something that they should look at for in the future, that right. if weather comes down like that, that I see says, okay, everybody, immediate safety zones. Right. It's because one of those rules, right? the command people aren't doing that in this scenario. No, they're not. So it, it, maybe it's something that needs to be written, like a, a, a point. I don't know. It's just a thought. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a great idea because... If that would have happened, people would have been safe. Could have been, yeah. 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 Um, you know, what Although, the other thing is that this weather never showed up. According to Blue Ridge, who was on the fire, 50-mile-an-hour right. winds never showed up. That's they right. were on the fire, and they say it was 20 to 30 at the most. Well, and didn't you say, I mean, if it was really blown away, let's get real. People would be pulling out their cell phones. They'd be taking pictures of this. Right. You wouldn't be able to hear in the radio. Yeah, the radios you wouldn't be able to hear. I don't think 
any of the aircraft would be in the air at 50 oh, mile an hour. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, at this about now we're at like 247, 1447. There is um, aerial supervision changes. The thing is, though, is when they change, they only do like a 10-minute briefing. But, Doug, didn't you say that that... Yeah, one, one, the, the person giving the briefing, according to him in the interviews, it was a 10-minute briefing. According to the person who got the briefing, there was minimal to no briefing. So. And, again, that's not brought up in the serious accident yeah. investigation report. You would think that that would be stressed, that... You know, this happened, but yeah. not a word, not a mention. And if it was such a poor briefing, I wonder how many other people on the fire actually knew that there was a change in air attack, if they knew that they would be calling a different air, air attack when they called them. Well, or maybe you should have been doing the interviews instead, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's a logical question right? that wasn't asked. You know, who, who else knew about those changes? You think you're talking with someone you've been talking to all day, about locations, and then you're talking with someone who has no idea what you're talking about. And At, locations are important. Right. Right. So somewhere in this time, um, the field OSC interview um, states that planning um, OSC needs help with engines doing backburns, oh, no. yeah, right? It, What's it, going on with that? So in the interview, in the ADOSH interview, it's kind of brought up that the planning operations chief in another portion of the fire is directing uh, burns burnout operations to save some homes in another area of the fire not related to where we are but it's just a tactic that it seems like these that they're taking they're just burning uh, out uh, along to save homes I right. just wanted to bring that up but but yet that's not brought up in the serious accident investigation report right it's when they um, this person brings it up there's no follow-up questions right it's just kind of <laughs> Like this turd that's slapped out, everybody ignores it, right? right. Yeah. Okay. I, it's just blows my mind. It sounds like those backburns were successful and saved some homes, but it's just another a, a that it was issue. What they were what they were doing on this fire. They were doing on this they fire. They were doing backburns on this fire. Yeah. But nobody talks about that. Um, and I think we need to reiterate because we really do pay attention to Granite Mountain here. There were a lot of firefighters. There were volunteer firefighters, structure firefighters. Um, you know, mom and pop firefighters. I don't know. There was just a lot of firefighters on this fire, a lot of agencies on this fire. This is um, a fire that was in a wildland urban interface. Um, there were sheriffs, there were, um, you know, everybody and their mother happening here. So there right. was a lot of people coming and going. Right. And then at 326, 1526, another weather, weather update came. And this is another one saying there's going to be 40 to 50 mile an hour winds, uh, this wind shift thing. And it's, um, you know, the same up, same things we're bringing up. They're only reading it over TAC 1, according to the interviews. There's a lot of people on other TAC channels. Um, Blue Ridge heard different wind directions. The dozer and the dozer boss that was with Blue Ridge um, said they never heard, they never got the weather updates. Because they were on TAC 3. Right. Or, or they just happened to be busy on another right. TAC, TAC okay. or something. Right, okay, makes sense, yep. Um, and according to Blue Ridge, like we said, it never got to 30 mile an hour. And I trust, you know, hot shots on the ground would know what the weather's going to be like, mm -hmm. what, they're, what mm -hmm. they're dealing with. And, and again, numerous people on this fire never heard the weather Right, changed. if you look at the interviews, a lot of them said, we didn't hear. People at the shrine, we didn't hear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about 3.30, they say the winds changed 90 degrees. That 
there was a three-mile active flaming front. So there was now a discussion between um, OSC and Marsh. Um, there was a two-mile flanking fire. It started to look like a head fire. I don't understand flanking fire and head fire, Doug. So the flanking fire means it's just kind of gro growing out, but a head fire would mean it's being pushed by either terrain or wind. So either it's being going up the hill, it's just going fast. It's just pushing fast in a, in a direction. Flanking fires are kind of spreading out evenly a little bit. Okay, so um, communication gets even more hectic, and that's hard to believe from this point. And a lot of, uh, according to what uh, Blue Ridge was saying, this, is, this uh, head flanking fire change created kind of two heads because they were attacking that fire without solidly anchoring it. Remember we talked oh, about yes. how they weren't going yes. along the edge? consistently so then the fire could grow in two different areas and kind of come have like two heads of fire coming at them we have so much to cover and this is such a crucial critical time we don't want to rush or brush anything quickly we um, don't want you to feel like we're leaving you on some type of cliffhanger but there is a lot that happens in the next couple of hours on june 30th and we want to treat it very sensitively. The Serious Accident Investigation Report is full of deception at this point. Um, interviews clash, and we really want to express what has been discovered and what we know as truth. So it's June 30th at 3.30. Episode 4 will pick up right where we're leaving off. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Penny University's presentation of Our Investigation, Our Truth. Please join us again for the next episode in this thought-provoking series. We hope you found us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe.